text will be printed is uh, that we'll be looking at this morning is printed in your bulletin. This is a story, a, a fairly familiar one, um, and it is a story about power. It is one of my favorite in, in the New Testament. Jesus demonstrates uh, in these few verses that he has incredible power, um, power over nature, over the demonic, over physical, and even over death. Uh, lots of power crammed into a very few pages, um, and yet this passage really is foundational uh, for us, uh, or should be. If you were here last week, you know we started a new series uh, looking at the 12 steps, or that's what they're called, 12 steps of recovery. A friend of mine, I uh, had lunch with him this week, and he had been in rehab, and he asked me what we were doing, actually, in the service, and I told him, and his response uh, when I said, well, we're, we're looking at the 12 steps, he said, why? Um, and my answer was, I'm not sure. Um, some of you, if you were here last week, said this, you were very kind and said things like, oh, you're very brave to do this. I'll, I'll tell you, it's really not true at all. Uh, the strongest, bravest people I know are the people that I've ever met are people fighting to stay sober. Some of you are wondering why, if you're like me, why are we looking at this? I don't have an addict. Uh, I don't know any addicts. These steps really are more about spirituality. How do I grow spiritually? Or how do I even begin to have a spiritual life? And what exactly does that mean? Look with me as I read uh, from this very familiar story from Mark, uh, verses 1 through 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would crowd and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. As Jesus was getting in the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell him the copolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Let's pray. Father, we're uh, really stunned by this story. It seems so very far from us, so far from our own lives, so far from our experiences uh, in some ways, and yet for many of us, uh, this story resonates with where we find ourselves this morning. We pray uh, that you would meet with us, that as this man encountered you, we would encounter you no matter where we are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. 
Amen. If you were with us last week, we looked at the first step, which really was about being powerless. What does it mean uh, to be without power? Power over people, places, and things. And this week, we're looking at step two, uh, so to speak. Uh, This is what the step actually says. We came to be aware that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, is the way the writer originally penned that. Look, we must embrace uh, this step if we're ever going to make progress spiritually. Now, why would I say that? Uh, Just the problem that sort of is uh, unrolled in the step, but even more importantly, unrolled in actually the story uh, that we find from Mark. Many of us are thinking, look, I don't have an army of devils living in me, and this story seems so out of step with my life. One writer said this, no, it may not be an army, but it's more like a circus. Most of us look at the man with this legion of problems in his own life, and that becomes the focal point of the passage of the story. There's some truth in that, uh, and yet the question has to be asked, why would Jesus bring his disciples? Why were they included? Some have responded to that by saying, well, really, the point of the focal point of the story, uh, and there's no doubt about this, is that they needed to see who Jesus really was. That's certainly true. But at least humor me just a little bit here. He also wanted to teach them something. Everywhere that he drags his disciples along with him, and that is the best description to give, uh, they were drugged along with him, especially to this place. Um, he wanted to show them something. Not just about himself, but about them, about themselves, who they were. What you find in the story is they are as much without power, maybe more so, as the man they encounter. Jesus drags them to this place that's absolutely unclean. What do I mean by that? This is um, a place that's completely taboo. Uh, This is the place of death. No reasonable person, no sane person, uh, would be found in this place. And if you remember the story in verses 1 through 5, this reads like um, a really good horror movie. Uh, It's likely that this is past the dead of night, maybe 4 or 5 in the morning. And imagine if you're sitting in the boat with Jesus, he leans over to Peter and he says, Peter, why don't you row us over to... Uh, the Gergensene shore. I'm sure if you'd have been Peter, there would have been nervous laughter initially um, because Peter knew exactly what this region was and what this meant. Uh, This was not just the wrong side of the tracks. It was Gentile land as well. Peter probably at this point in time wouldn't admit that he's afraid, afraid, so he begins to head that way at least a little bit. But he's really not making much progress. Because by this point in time, he's realized that Jesus is serious, and so his hands are shaking so bad that he probably can't row. The oars are barely touching the water. And by now, also, the other disciples in the boat have noticed where they're heading as well. And there's this general uneasiness that begins to descend on the boat. And if that were not enough, there's also the scent of pigs in the air, which for them would have left no room for doubt where they were heading. But it's not just the location, and it's not just the pigs uh, that are producing this sort of fear. Uh, They know who lives there. Um, 
they wait in anticipation that this is going to be a joke. Jesus is going to slap them on the back and have a good laugh at their expense, but this is no joke. Everything about this place and this person is wrong is the only description to give of it. It's just wrong on every level. Psychologically, socially, spiritually, any way that you want to look at this, this was the wrong place to be. Step two calls it insanity. <laughs> it's the way it describes it. Um, for many of us, we think of insanity this way. It's a state of being mental, seriously mentally ill or mad. The dictionary goes on to describe it this way, extremely foolish or irrationality. This passage is full of insanity. What do I mean that? There's no power to help or control this guy. Not only in the boat with the disciples, but certainly on shore with the people that knew him. The writer describes this, Jesus describes this, this individual had been chained hand and foot. And at night, uh, in case you're wondering, you could hear him screaming, by the way, in the local village. When my son first went to rehab, we, uh, to say that I didn't want to be there would have been uh, a gross understatement. Um, Almost every parent that experiences that knows what I'm getting ready to say. Not just that I didn't want to be there. I was really angry about this as well. Angry about everything is the best description. How could he do this? Um, we had to go, or we were asked to go, required to go to the parent program. And that's, in case uh, you've never been to that, I hope you never go to that. It's an every Saturday sort of event. Every Saturday morning, rain, sleet, or snow, it made no difference. We had to be there. All of us ask the same question. Why am I required to go to this? Um, it's his problem, after all. He did this, not me. It seemed to be, at the, on the surface, very unfair. But we were required to go. We went. We kept going. Eventually, we actually went so much that we were leading parent groups. What's stunning is everyone comes in that program the same way. They come with the idea that it's all about the addict. It's their problem. Or uh, we throw ourselves into the program in the hopes, in the dream, that somehow you will teach me how to fix my child or to stop them from using the reality is it's sad and it's silly. Look, a refusal to embrace our lack of power, a refusal to embrace the first step means that we have more learning to do. Because what happens is we tend to make our issues about other people. Suddenly all of my problems, my anger was all about my son and his issue. It was his fault, his problem. In other words, I began to sort of blame shift to those around me. If this insanity is so real, how do we know, right? How do you know that you're insane? Uh, isn't that sort of an oxymoron? How can you know that you're crazy if you're crazy? Um, everyone in the region, just the marks that you see here in this story, everyone in the region knew about this man. Again, picture the disciples huddled behind Jesus, and they're squinting into the dim light on these hills, and suddenly what looks like this hazy shadow turns into a silhouette, and then it's a naked body screaming bloody murder, running down the hill at them, directly at Jesus and this group that's huddled in this boat. 
You can imagine the scramble, the disciples scrambling for the boat. Who's going to get the oars and who's going to get away from here? And there's probably some of this going on as well. Bartholomew telling Matthew that he cheated on his taxes. Uh, They're all making these last-minute confessions about stuff that they had done that they shouldn't have done. I really didn't like you. I don't like this. And just all these things. Then verse 5 goes further. Every night in the village below the hills, you'd wake at 2 in the morning to hear this hellish screaming that's occurring. They didn't have storm windows, by the way. No way to shut out this noise. He's literally scraping the ground, cutting himself, screaming day and night. He ate pigs, he ate grass, um, possibly the people in the tombs. And if that were not enough to determine that this guy was a lost cause, the rabbis had four tests to actually prove it. The first test, he roamed around at night, verse 5. Verse 2, he lived in a graveyard. Uh, That's verse 3. Number three, if he tore his clothes, that's actually verse 4, if he destroyed what was given to him, which he did. But I want you to notice this man wasn't always this way. Verse 3 and 4 indicate that he had been bound before. Humans had hoped to contain him, to overpower him before things had gotten to this point. But every restraint, every attempt they had at controlling him was utterly doomed to failure. They tried to bind him with rope, bind him with chains, even shackle him, but he destroyed them all. Every human effort was hopeless. This is the perfect description of being powerless. Before I list the ways that we try to have power over others, I will confess that I have used each and every one of them in various shapes, forms, and fashions. The first is this. I want you to notice... Complete isolation on his part. You notice he's completely alone. It's actually what happens when there's a lack of power in our lives. We normally find ourselves isolated from those around us. And then the manipulations start occurring. We cry in order to change another. Tears are one of the ways. Denial. The problem's really not that bad. It's not that severe. It's a phase. They'll get out of it. They'll go through this. Um... The other is excuse making. Well, it's really not that bad. Um, They'll eventually get over this. Uh, Their using is really not that bad. I refuse to actually believe that this is true. And then blame shifting. Not only blame shifting to them, look at what they're doing, but blame shifting to me. It's my fault. I've done this. I've created this problem. When none of those work, and by the way, they won't, Uh, We resort to threats, right? If you do this, then I'm going to, and then we provide whatever we think is going to be a threat big enough uh, to solve the issue. We also throw a good bit of shame into the mix. What do I mean by that? No one else acts like this. Why can't you get your act together? You have all these advantages and you're not using them. You're smart and you're blowing all of your chances. And then, of course, we play the part of the victim. Look at what you're doing to me. Don't you care about me? Don't you care about your family? Don't you care about those around you? If you loved me, this is my favorite, you wouldn't do that. That just doubles down not only on their shame, but the way we feel as well. And then when none of those work, we resort to playing the martyr. What do I mean by that? Let me change so that you'll be happy. 
if I give enough, if I love you the right way, you will change. You'll stop this behavior. Every one of these things, by the way, is found in this story. It's built around the idea of fear and control. It means a failure to sort of reckon with the idea that I'm really without power over people, places, and things. I begin to think, and by the way, this is the sign of insanity, that I am responsible, that I can change, control, or fix another person in the way that they feel or think. Douglas Copeland wrote a book called Life After God. This is what he says, and he says this as a non-Christian, yet it's incredibly relevant. Now, here's my secret. I tell you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you're in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God, that I'm sick and I can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I am no longer seem able or capable of giving. To help me be kind. I no longer seem capable of kindness to help me love. I seem beyond being able to love. Hopelessness or actually being without power, produces all of these various forms of insanity that I somehow am responsible and can control and fix people, places, and things. It manifests itself in all types of ways. But step two is one of incredible hope. And why would I say that? It's one of being without power. That's true. Being powerless but not helpless. Again, I want to read step two in all of its entirety. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I'll tell you, when I first encountered this step, I thought I've got this one. Um, in fact, I told the guy that was guiding me through these, I, I kind of gave him a hint. Well, he already knew what I did for a living. So, you know, we come to this passage, and I'm thinking, yeah, we're going to do this one in, what, ten minutes? I've got this one covered. Um, because I've always believed in God. The guy that pointed, by the way, that I said that to, he said this, if you have such a belief in him, then why are you not sleeping? Why are you worrying? Why are you so angry? Um, By the way, that guy was not a Christian at all, but he seemed to take great delight in pointing these things out. Um, Some mistake this second step as this. It's a belief in God. It's a common way of misunderstanding what's being said here. There's another set of characters in the story that you encounter that a lot of times are overlooked. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus either. It wasn't just the guy with the legion, but it was the people that owned the pigs, the people in the countryside, the people in the towns. Here he comes, and he gets rid of their biggest problem that existed in their village. This guy who screams and yells and cries out day and night, he sort of fixes their issue And how do they respond? They respond by basically coming unglued and asking him to leave. Some have said they're concerned about the financial loss with all the pigs kind of floating like barrels in the sea. That might be one of it. Um, And in certain places, Jesus does demand a response. Uh, But here's the reality. They would rather have their social standing than their finances. It's interesting that they force Jesus to leave. They entreat him to be gone. One writer said this, I grew up with Robbie Stewart, the neighborhood bully, 
who was the owner of a handful of huffy bikes and skateboards that had been mine at one point. He writes, in the summer of 84, Doug Nash moved into the neighborhood one day. Robbie was approaching me on my most recent bike, right as I was considering actually turning over ownership to him. Um, Doug Nash walked over and calmly exercised complete dominion over Robbie. He said it was a joy to behold. He sent him home crying. Now, you would think I would have been grateful. He said, but the truth of the matter is I was terrified. Because if I was hopeless in regard to Robbie Stewart, what hope did I have facing Doug Nash? Jesus comes into this story, a situation that looks completely hopeless. No one can control it. No one can fix it. Can fix that person, that place, and those circumstances. Verse 16 says the people were frightened. Now why? You see, they're moved by Jesus' power. There's no doubt about that, but they're not moved by His grace at all. Another reason I think they wanted Jesus to leave is that suddenly their points of comparison were gone. They couldn't look at the demoniac, this crazy man, and say, well, at least my little Johnny's uh, not out digging in the tombs, and at least he's not running around naked and dealing drugs. Or you could look at the demoniac and say, at least I'm not that bad. Lord, I thank you. I'm not like that guy. Jesus moves in to this village, and he now destroys their ability to make comparisons. Suddenly, all of them had to realize not only that they were powerless, but they were hopeless apart from his intervention. The good news of the story, the good news of the second step is this. There's no one good enough for the gospel. No one can make a comparison that you're acceptable. Yet the great news of this story is there's no one bad, too bad for the gospel either. God present and powerful. That's what the second step is really all about. All of these people that encounter Jesus are forced suddenly to look at themselves. What was the difference between the response of the man with legion and the villagers? If they're just as powerless as the demon-possessed man, if they're just as hopeless to change, what's the difference? Well, really, the difference is with Jesus himself. They were busy comparing themselves with other people. The demon-possessed guy compared himself with Jesus repeatedly in the story. The second step is not about affirming that God exists. Actually, even this demon-possessed guy, even the demons believe that. The second step is really all about this. Is that God, the God you serve, is He powerful enough to handle your problems? Powerful enough to be entrusted with not just your present, but with your past and your future. Maybe a better way to phrase this, is he powerful enough this morning to meet you in these very simple elements of bread and wine? One writer describes that he was walking through a large Buddhist temple. He said he saw something that was really heartbreaking. A large number of people in this particular place were very poor and desperate, and they were bowing down to a golden Buddha. They were stuffing what was left of their measly finances into the treasury box and kneeling, hoping to secure some type of blessing from Buddha. 
on the other side of this extremely large golden statue was scaffolding that had been built. Uh, This Buddha had begun to deteriorate, and a group of workers were diligently trying to repair it. He said, I just sat back and took in the scene. Broken people were bowing down to a broken Buddha, asking the broken Buddha to fix their broken lives while someone else was trying to fix the broken Buddha. He said the insanity and the despair just overwhelmed him. The reality is we're broken people looking to other broken people to fix our lives. We have a glory deficit, uh, is the way one writer describes it, looking to other glory-deficient people to supply us with glory. Looking to other people to provide what they lack themselves is insanity. It's a fool's errand. It's futile to look to others to fix us. It's insanity to look at others and try to fix them. People, places, and things, I am without power. But I can be restored to sanity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your great love that You gather us this morning. And we admit, we confess, we acknowledge the ways that we have tried to control people, places, and things. We use all of the power at our disposal. We use tears, manipulation, guilt. Um, And when it doesn't work, we find ourselves in despair. Father, meet with us, we pray. Strengthen and renew us. Fill us with your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.